Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. In a growing number of arrests and overdoses, Law enforcement officials say the drugs are being bought online. Internet sales have allowed powerful synthetic opioids such as fentanyl to reach living rooms in nearly every region of our country as they arrive in small packages in the mail. Here to talk about the internet, the new drug dealer fueling the opioid epidemic, and what's being done to stop drug traffic on the internet is Mike Tobin, community and public affairs specialist with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Cleveland, Ohio. So Mike, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Okay. So, Mike, in 2013, Silk Road was taken down by authorities who believed they had stopped sales of illicit drugs on the dark web, where buyers could uh, shop anonymously using special browsers and Bitcoin to make their purchases. Can you tell us a little bit about how that marketplace works and how it was shut down? Sure, Greg, and thank you for for having me and and for for your attention in this. Uh, issue and in, in opioids in general. Um, Silk Road is uh, was was an online marketplace. You know, we in law enforcement, uh, I should say, we as as consumers love the internet. We can get our groceries online, and we can stream movies online, and I can hear a concert on YouTube. Uh, you know, a day after it happens. Uh, but just as all of us people with good intentions have flocked to it, so have have people with bad intentions. We've seen that as it relates to child pornography. We've seen it. Uh, with ISIS as, as a recruiting tool, uh, and certainly we've seen it uh, with drugs. And from a law enforcement perspective, the internet, the regular internet, is probably a beautiful thing for you because it's so traceable. It's traceable. Uh, people leave their digital fingerprints. There's there's all sorts of cases where we just uh, download some information and, and, and you make the case uh, that way, the way you know the old gumshoes would, would dust for, for fingerprints we get digital fingerprints. Sure, social media, it's all over. Exactly, yeah. and including gangsters flashing their guns and stolen money on Facebook. Um, the, the dark web is, is somewhat different. It's for those who are seeking anonymity, uh, people who don't want uh, you to know what they're, what they're looking for, what they're buying. And basically anything is for sale uh, on, on the dark web. Uh, that includes uh, sex, that includes uh, stolen goods, that includes drugs. Uh, and so, the, the way investigators were able to crack that is, is the way they have sort of always done cases where they assume an identity and, and sort of go undercover. But instead of being undercover, uh, posing 
in a in a neighborhood as as a drug purchaser, uh, they're posing online as as people purchasing drugs. Hmm. So completely anonymous. Correct. Uh, these are these are federal law enforcement agents posing, you know, playing a role essentially, uh, and from there, then they can start to try and trace the money. Um, but again, the internet, as everyone knows, is global. So it's not a matter always of doing a case in Ohio and and finding something in Massachusetts, although that's one case we'll talk about. Uh, we're finding cases in Bulgaria, in China, in the former Soviet Union, all over the world. And so then the question becomes, how do you get those people? What What is our relationship with, with their diplomatic corps? Is there an extradition treaty? So it's very labor-intensive. Um, it's very time-consuming. And Sometimes you have great results, and sometimes you're just sort of a mouse going down a, a maze. So this Silk Road was the biggest um, out there, and they really made a splash, and they thought that the market would be you know, kind of taken care of. Your job would be done there. And then this other, by the name of, I guess it was Alpha Bay, sure. sprung up right after that. Correct. And, and this is not uh, unusual in law enforcement uh, with drugs or, or anything else. You, you take down one organization— and another one uh, pops up. I mean, essentially, these people are filling a demand. It's, maybe it's a demand that we wish wasn't there, a demand we need to work together to reduce, uh, but they are supplying a demand. And, and we've seen that with our drug cases going back 30 years. You, you take down a cocaine dealer, um, it, it dries up the supply of cocaine for a weekend or, or a month, uh, but then somebody fills that void. And, and so, yes, Silk Road was taken down, Alpha Bay was taken down, uh, we do these cases because it's important to to do them, but we don't have any illusions that it will eradicate the problem. It will help improve it, but it won't eliminate it. Hmm. Oftentimes, it's just a temporary improvement, and then it kind of goes back, right? I think that I think that's accurate. Yeah. We we take down bad guys who are who are breaking the law, and and in a lot of cases, lock them up. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that there are people who want to buy drugs Huge or, demand. or want to pay for images of children yeah. being raped or all sorts of, or, or people who are drawn to terroristic ideology. Yeah. Uh, it's a Band-Aid, but, but it doesn't take care of the, the root problem. Unlike heroin and prescription painkillers, which are relatively bulky, you can fit enough fentanyl to get 50,000 people high in a standard first-class envelope. When I read that in one of the articles you sent me, that blew me away. How do you fight that, Mike? <laughs> uh, Greg, that's a great question. I mean, the internet has been, uh, you know, we, we talk about disruption, disrupt, you know, technologies that disrupts things. I used to work at a newspaper. There aren't that many newspapers anymore. Yeah. One time there was a guy who made wagon wheels and then the Model T was invented and we didn't really have a need for wagon wheels. So history is full of times where technology advances and it changes the marketplace. And uh, we're seeing that right now in, in the drug trade. Uh, it used to be uh, here in Cleveland and, and throughout the United States, the way drugs got here is they would often come over the southwest border, they would be driven up to, to a bigger city like New York or Chicago, and then they would uh, be transferred here to, to Cleveland and, and people would go buy them on street corners. What we're seeing now is people can, can order their drugs online, often uh, on the dark web, but not always, sometimes just through regular Google. Um, and it's, it's being mailed here because, as you said, it's, it's, it's small, um, it's, it's not easily traceable, and we get you know, tens of millions of packages every year from, from overseas. So we could theoretically search every one of those packages, 
And then people would be upset because the thing they ordered from Amazon took eight days instead of two, and we would bring the economy to a screeching halt. Or we can use our best investigative methods to try and figure out what's coming in here, but knowing full well that we're not going to get every single thing or even most things. So Senator Brown and Portman put together a, some proposed legislation to invest in some equipment, monitoring equipment, at our borders that would enable them to detect fentanyl coming in. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, just to throw a question off, off the page, not part of our... Yeah. Well, we here at the Justice Department cannot comment on legislation. Uh, oh. we, we enforce the, the laws as they're written by Congress, so we defer to Congress to, to write the laws. Um, certainly, we in law enforcement are looking for whatever tools we can, uh, can get our hands on to, to try and stem the tide, but uh, I will leave the legislation to the legislators. Got it. Yeah, very wise. This summer, the DEA agents busted a suspected Chinese fentanyl dealer by the name of Bin Wang in Massachusetts, who was selling to buyers in Ohio. And in fact, I understand that one or more people died directly as a result of him dealing fentanyl to them. So can you tell us a little bit about that case and why, Mike, it was so significant? Sure. Um, it's, uh, it's a great example of uh, law enforcement working together collaboratively to, to uh, stem the, the tide, but also uh, the challenges we face. Um, the roots of this case go back to March of 2015 in Akron when uh, a couple of people uh, died, tragically. They, they uh, took fentanyl and they died. And uh, Akron police did a great job. They um, searched the scene as, you know, this is a change in law enforcement. Years ago, if someone died of an overdose, you, you would just call the, the, the coroner and have them taken away. Police now are searching it as a murder scene, looking for clues, looking for evidence. Uh, and in this case, they, they found evidence. They found a baggie. Um, that, that Thomas Rao, who's the gentleman who died, uh, that he, the, you know, that had the heroin in it. And they ran it for fingerprints and found a, found a fingerprint of a guy named Leroy Steele through a law enforcement database. Look at Leroy Steele. They knew who he was. They knew he was a known drug dealer in the Akron area. Started investigating him. Uh, brought in the DEA. Uh, were able to get, uh, able to see through, through uh, Mr. Steele's phones eventually that he was ordering uh, the fentanyl directly from China. His phone was linked to a Gmail account, which is how they were able to, to trace uh, the purchases. Steele and his girlfriend go on the run. Uh, they were under federal indictment, but, but didn't know it. But I, I suspect they knew law enforcement was closing in. Uh, and they were arrested in 2016, trying to cross over in, into Canada. But backing up a little bit, the, the companies that, that Steele was ordering the, the fentanyl from, that then gave DEA agents an idea of, you know, somebody to look at. Um, and so, like we talked about earlier, DEA agents go undercover. They assume an identity. Uh, they figure out the lingo and the jargon, and they begin ordering uh, fentanyl and, and car fentanyl and all the fentanyl analogs from, from these companies in China. Now, it's really probably just one or two companies, but they change their names every so often, which is you know, okay. one, of the, one of the challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, but in this case, they, they are tracking the packages because they're, they're shipped here by UPS and FedEx and, and you know, all, the, all the carriers. And they realize that while some of the packages, like in Steele's case, were going directly to him in Akron from China, 
in other cases, more of them were going to a warehouse in Boston for a, for a chemical company. So they start looking at that company. Uh, and it's, you know, this sort of gets into law enforcement playing a cat and mouse game like you've seen in The French Connection or mm -hmm. any sure. other movie. Sure, fascinating. Um, the, the shippers in China realize that if they send it to the warehouse in Boston, which is a chemical company, that may not raise red flags because it would be logical that chemicals are going from China to a, to a chemical company in Boston. Yeah. Well, of course, the chemical company is, is just a front. It's Delicious. just a, a domestic shipping point. So they would send the drugs from China to Boston where a guy named Bin Wang, who's a Chinese national who was living in Massachusetts, would then take the drugs, repackage them, and send them throughout the United States, including here in Ohio. Hmm. Wow. And they're small enough where it's not a red flag. Right. It's the package. You know, somebody's, and, and of course, when they're, when they're ordering it, the undercover or, or, or the customers, they're not saying, hey, send me fentanyl. There's, there's codes that, that have always existed as it relates to drugs. But, so it's, it's, it's sort of surreptitious. Um, they're speaking in code. And they're, you know, really they're trying to minimize risk. Um, they're trying to make it look like this is just a normal transaction. And they're banking on the fact that there's so many packages going at all times that, that we're not going to find it. Um, so this case in particular has drawn a lot of interest because it's the first time we've been able to make a direct tie to, to China, um, to, to a company, mm -hmm. that, that we're able to, to trace it. Um, so we have, you know, there's prosecutors all over the country saying, trying to figure out, well, did the drugs in their district come from this warehouse in Boston as well? So it's, it's a great success for us. But again, like, like Silk Road, like Alpha Bay, we don't harbor any illusions that because we've cut off this one head of the hydra that, that the problem has gone away. Um, we'll pat ourselves on the back for 30 seconds and then get back to, to the next case. How about getting to the people in China that run that operation? What's his name, Gordon Jin? Gordon Jin, which we believe it's is a, great a, name. a pseudonym <laughs> playing off of the, the, the brand Gordon mm -hmm. Jin. Um, we don't think that's his actual name. Uh, as best we know, he's in China. Um, the investigation is ongoing. Uh, whether Mr. Jin ever sees a, a U.S. courtroom is uh, an open question. But again, this goes to the challenges. We're, we're dealing with someone who is literally half a world away mm -hmm. uh, in a country where I don't think it's a secret that there are diplomatic challenges right now going on between the United States and China. And, and there are equities involved, and um, it, it's, you know, the State Department will, will figure out how to prioritize this. Okay, so the, uh, the Plain Dealer published an article that's titled, Risking Death, Testers Become Guinea Pigs for Heroin Dealers, Lethal Doses. Can you tell us a little bit about that practice? Uh, I can tell you what I know about it. Uh, and the idea of testers, uh, surprisingly, is not new. Um, heroin dealers have, have been doing it for a long time, uh, going back to, uh, you know, there's a scene in the French Connection where, uh, where they sort of show how that happens. Uh, obviously, when, when people get drugs, it's not like uh, getting it from Whole Foods or, or Walmart. There's not a list of ingredients. There's not uh, a certification of, of what's in it. Um, so the drug dealers will typically use what we call testers. They're people who they know who will do the drugs for free. These are people typically badly in addiction. Uh, and then they will report, you know, it's high quality, it's low quality. 
And the dealer then will figure out, A, how to price it, and, and B, how much he can cut it or step on it or dilute it. Um, so while the idea of using testers isn't, isn't new, uh, what is new is, is the, the level of lethality um, that we're seeing. Uh, these are folks, in, like in Leroy Steele's case, who are getting the drugs shipped from China. And our experience is they don't know exactly whether it's heroin, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's carfentanyl, whether it's any of these derivatives. And so the tester is putting something in their body that, that can very easily kill them on the first try. Um, if, you know, if, if being a tester is akin to playing Russian roulette, being a tester in this day and age with all these uh, dangerous drugs is, is like playing Russian roulette with, with five bullets in the chamber. And it seemed, by the way that the article in The Plain Dealer conveyed it, it seemed just so almost arbitrary uh, what the dealers are doing in, in terms of they're sitting around <clears throat> at a kitchen table and, and mixing up this concoction and then giving it to their tester who gets their drugs for free. Uh, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, this is, uh, they are human guinea pigs. The, this is a science experiment uh, where the person in charge of it doesn't really care about the, uh, the person using the drug. They're just in it for the money. All drug dealers are, but this really sort of takes it to a new level. They're sort of playing mad scientist, and then the, the tester is there to see, you know, if, if they can survive it. Uh, or, or how to how to price it. Um, it's it's hard to get your head around because uh, it just shows such a lack of concern for for uh, for the fellow human beings, human life. Absolutely, sure. yeah. So really interesting about this article is the fact that it goes on to link the dealer that you mentioned, Leroy Steele, to that practice because his tester was the the gentleman that the article revolved around. Um, and he was at the center of the case that you spoke about. Earlier. That's right. Uh, you know, John Coniglia from the Plain Dealer did a great job of sort of sort of diving into the details. Um, in this case, uh, the tester is, was a gentleman named Brian Stallnacker, uh, forty-eight years old from the Akron area, father of six, who knew Leroy Steele um, from past business dealings. And Mr. Stallnacker uh, battled uh, alcoholism and, and, and addiction to heroin. Um, but what what we found and, and what John's reporting bears out uh, is that Stallnacker worked for Steele as a tester. And, of course, Leroy Steele is serving 20 years in federal prison. Uh, he's someone that, that we were able to prove was importing large amounts of, of drugs from China and selling it uh, all around the, uh, the Akron area. Um, Steele is convicted of, of causing one death. Uh, but we believe he's linked to, to several more. And like I said, he's doing 20 years in prison. His girlfriend is serving 10 years. Wow. So, and his girlfriend said that they were the first to use this stuff and never had to pay. So they just mixed it up and passed it right over to him. Sure, that's uh, not uncommon uh, where drug dealers will will give uh, drugs for free. Uh, you know, and if, I, I would be using air quotes. I mean, nothing is free. Stallnacker's sure. putting his life uh, in the hands of Steele, uh, and, and we know how that ends for Mr. Stallnacker. Uh, but yeah, Leroy Steele would, would give the drugs for free to his tester, uh, who then would presumably report back the, the purity um, of, 
of the drug. So Steele then knew how much he could cut it, how he could price it, that sort of stuff. Wow. That, that's just unfathomable, un, unbelievable. Right. Uh, I, I mean, like I said, the idea of testers is, is not new. We, we've seen that in heroin cases going back at least 15 years. But this is just so dangerous because the people have no idea of what, what they're taking. Uh, people have no idea what they're buying. Uh, dealers have no idea what they're getting. They're ordering something online. It's coming in the mail from China. Um, but like I said, it's not like the grocery store where you take it back and say, oh, this isn't exactly what I ordered. You're at the mercy of somebody half the world away who you have no idea who they are. Um, and that, I think, is in large part what's driving the, this huge increase in deaths we've seen in the last couple of years, yeah. where the, the, all the standard rules that governed the drug trade, uh, informal rules, have sort of gone out the window. So um, back a couple of months ago, we uh, heard an NPR report about a fentanyl test strip that they were using it uh, in the Bronx, uh, St. Anne's corner of harm reduction. And they were actually giving out these test strips along with syringes on the syringe exchange uh, truck. And what they found is that users were 10 times more likely to change their usage habits when they use that test strip on their stuff prior to usage. In other words, it's not that they did not not use it, but they went a little slower and uh, took their time in a smaller dose. Um, do you have any comment in terms of um, the, the keeping users safe um, and harm reduction as it you know, applies to this and, and having you know, uh, something out there that would cost a, a buck per test strip versus human testers? Sure. You know, I, in my job, I've, I've come across lots of different people who are, who are uh, trying to come up with ways uh, to turn the tide on, on this epidemic. And as you know, Ohio is the, the leading state in the, in the nation for the numbers of deaths uh, from heroin and opioids. And what I've heard from a lot of people is uh, we're in uncharted territory and we need to try new things, try anything um, to experiment. So if there are things out there that can help save lives, because that's really what we're talking about, um, then, then, then why not give it a try? Uh, Dr. Joan Papp at Metro Health says, you know, uh, the only time someone can't get treatment is if they're dead. And so if, um, if there are things out there that help us keep people alive long enough to stabilize them and get them into treatment, I, I don't see the downside. President Trump declared the opioid epidemic a national emergency. What does that mean to you and, you know, the team of law enforcement officials and your ability to really respond to the epidemic? Uh, the, the honest answer, and, and this isn't a criticism, but we don't know yet. Uh, the, and this has always been a question with these states of emergency. I think the governor was, was thinking about declaring one. My understanding is it will perhaps free up some more money uh, on a variety of fronts for treatment, uh, for prevention, uh, perhaps for law enforcement. Um, we've been in a state of, of emergency here in Cleveland for at least five years. Uh, may, maybe not declared, but mm, but, but right. here in the office. As far as your modus operandi is absolutely the way you address uh, it. We saw, and, and this you know will be no surprise to your listeners, but uh, I remember when, when opioid deaths went from 40 
you know, in 2010 to, to 200 in 2012, and we thought, geez, what is going on here? We've never seen anything like this. Of course, now we look back on 200 deaths a year as, you know, geez, things weren't so bad. I mean, it's, it's four times as high now. Um, I mean, we have, we've got folks working around the clock on these cases, both on the prosecution side and on the investigative side, FBI, DEA, Cleveland Police, everyone you can imagine, uh, and they just go nonstop. We have, you know, there's Cleveland police officers who respond to every overdose now, going back to what we talked about, that now they're looking for clues or looking mm-hmm. for evidence. Yeah. And those guys, you know, we're, in, we're about to hit Labor Day, and they've already gone out on 1,000 runs, fatal and non-fatal. Um, so everybody's working around the clock. It's just a, a question of, you know, how do we... It, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. We cannot arrest our way out of this problem. So we will do all we can on the law enforcement side, uh, but at some point we have to rein in the demand, and, and that opens up a, a whole bunch of other questions as to how we do that. So what final thoughts do you have for our listeners about the opioid epidemic and protecting our borders from drugs entering the country? Well, uh, really two questions, right. and pretty big ones. Right. I'll leave the second part of it again to, to the folks in Washington who are, who are fighting that out. Um, but I will, whenever I think of this problem, I, I think of uh, the interview that El Chapo gave with, with Sean Penn. As a former reporter, I'm bummed I didn't get that exclusive. But um, Sean Penn asked El Chapo, for, for those who aren't familiar. It's quite a risky exclusive. That was well, just amazing. And that came right, out of nowhere, didn't right. it? Yeah, yeah. give us the, the but, background on that whole thing, because well, I vaguely remember it. Walk us through that. Well, I mean, El Chapo uh, was, is the leader of of the Sinaloa cartel, a multi-billion dollar uh, international drug organization that uses uh, violence uh, to, to enforce its will. This is, this is you know, a huge company with its own army uh, that is responsible for a heck of a lot of the drugs that have, have flowed into this country over the last probably 30 years. Uh, and, and El Chapo has been arrested numerous times and always broken out, in part because thought he has people on the on the take in Mexico. Just amazing, though, some of the ways that he's broken out. Sure, right. Long, long tunnels. Right. And, yeah. But before he was arrested again, uh, the most recent time, and he's now been extradited to the United States and presumably will not get free this time, uh, the actor Sean Penn was able to get an interview with him in Mexico and asked him, you know, when, how does this end? When when does when does this drug trade end? And, and Guzman, which is his, his real name, uh, said, there will be no more supply from us when there is no demand in the United States. Um, we we have, a, have a cultural and societal problem in this country. And law enforcement can take down all the warehouses in, in the United States. Um, but until there's a decrease in demand, um, we won't be able to, to turn the tide on the problem. And, you know, we, we live in a country where I you know, we'll watch a Browns game next week and be inundated by commercials either to get me to buy beer or to ask my doctor uh, to prescribe me a pill to take care of one of a thousand afflictions that I probably didn't even know I had and probably don't have. Um, This specific uh, uh, epidemic is inextricably tied to a massive increase in the amount of of painkillers that were prescribed in this country, which companies got paid a lot of money uh, to sell. And just like the, the guys who died in Akron that we talked about earlier, you know, they started on prescription painkillers. Um, 
we have to we have to break that cycle. We have to be willing to endure a little pain if we need to. Um, you know, for for years, people were able to survive wisdom teeth extractions with with Tylenol and and popsicles. They didn't need the twenty Vicodin that I got twenty years ago. Um, so, I I just think we 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 need to do a better job of of talking to our children and and preventing them from getting hooked on drugs and understanding um, that just because a doctor gives it to you doesn't mean there are no downsides. We need to certainly get treatment for people who, who want it and who are, who are, uh, who are open to it. Um, we need to, again, change the prescribing practices, and we in law enforcement will continue to do what we've been doing for, you know, going back 50 years, which is trying to take these guys off uh, one at a time. But until we reduce the demand, uh, we're, we're going to struggle to do that. Okay. Well, thanks, Mike. I Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you. We've been visiting today with Mike Tobin, who is the Community and Public Affairs Specialist with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Cleveland, Ohio. My name is Greg McNeil, the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.